0: This is the Pain Information Network. Elvis is in the room. We were at a meeting, and uh, I was with my wife, and we we're sitting in the back row, and they were recording. It's a uh, national meeting, American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians. And it, it occurred to us that the person recording the video part of the uh, meeting was uh, was Elvis and he was an Elvis uh, impersonator he's a really nice guy I ended up interviewing him and we'll have that interview on in a later podcast but I got to interview some fun people and I of course ambushed them as usual but they standing there and they're really great interviews they've been on before with the exception of Doris Brandon I've known Doris for about 15 years you'll hear her in here she's one of Dr. Manchikani's nurses, and she works directly with them in the OR. <clears throat> She's really one of these uh, spirited individuals that's, that's a lot of fun to be around because you just never know what's going to come out of her mouth. And she goes to the cadaver courses. She runs them, basically. Uh, I think she probably pretty much organizes them as well. There's a lot of Key people at the American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians that uh, make things happen, and she is one of them. It's great having her on, but she did get ambushed. <clears throat> In this episode, you also hear from Debbie Tracy and her assistant. You'll hear from Andrea Trescott, always a great interview, and Sandy Silverman. So it's just kind of a, uh, a walking round table, and when we uh, talk about uh, random topics, we tend to get it directly unscripted pretty much from the heart so that's the point here and um we'll have a, a couple more coming your way and hopefully all this f- soon so well enjoyed this and i'll catch you on the back side well we're in las vegas viva las vegas and uh of course we're at a meeting and it's an ASIP meeting, American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians meeting. It's always fun. I run into my friends, my really good friends, and to my right, the amazing Dr. D. She's been on before. Tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Well, my name is Dr. Deborah Tracy and I practice in Florida where the population of Medicare Patients is very high, highest than anywhere else in the country. So I get to see a lot of patients with degenerative joint disease. And we just had the opportunity here at the uh, American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians meeting in Las Vegas, their annual meeting, to hear a whole half day of lectures on regenerative medicine, which is basically the injection of stem cells or platelet rich plasma, either from the patient or from a donor. And it's just inspiring to know after practicing this myself for the past three years that we're making headway in our country because, as you know, this is still considered experimental and not covered by ins- our insurance companies. So, these poor people that are suffering with pain in their joints have to pay cash for these procedures because it's considered experimental. But what we heard today was a doctor that ASIP brought here all the way from France who's treated 5,000 patients and has has enormous success on the injection of stem cells in uh, joints and torn muscles and tendons. And there is nothing in the world better as a medical professional than hearing your patient say, oh my god, I'm so much better, or this is so great, or I've never had such a a good experience. And I have my medical assistant and patient coordinator with me here today, and she can tell you what that feels like.
0: Right, and I visited your office, um, and I was really impressed at the broad brush stroke that you use stem cells for. You actually use it for pulmonary conditions, too.
1: Yes, I do. I, uh, I take the patient's own blood and, and pull out uh, what we call platelet-rich plasma and stem cells, and I provide that in a nebulized form to the patient with end-stage COPD, emphysema, um, and and bronchial disease, and, uh, you know, when you can't breathe, it's a terrible, terrible feeling. When you can't walk a few steps, it's a terrible feeling. Uh, your quality of life is greatly compromised, and so anything, they'll do anything to get some relief. So we have had about a 50% success rate in this, and we start out with pulmonary functions and CT scans of the chest, and then we remeasure those over six months to a year to see if there's improvement. and sometimes. When people are declining rapidly and on 24-hour oxygen, even stabilization of the situation and the pulmonary function is considered a plus.
0: Yeah, really true. And, you know, it's a matter of walking up a flight of steps or going to the grocery store, something even as simple as that. And, you know, you turn somebody's quality of life around. That's
1: right, yes.
0: Well, who's sitting next to you?
1: Well, I have my medical assistant and patient coordinator, Deborah Jean Immel, who has the opportunity to hear patient responses to our therapies and treatments. And she's um, very articulate about how she feels about patient care.
0: Go ahead. Tell us about yourself.
1: All right. My name is Deborah Jean Immel, and I'm Dr. Tracy's medical assistant and patient coordinator for the past two years. And through the two years, I've seen patients come in at a very um, painful matter, and then it's wonderful to see them graduate to having no more pain and see Dr. Tracy work her magic on everybody.
0: Which she does, and uh, I've seen it firsthand too. So now um, you have to say... You put complete trust in somebody, a physician to physician, when uh, they treat a family member. And thank you for taking care of mom.
1: <laughs> well, you know, yeah, Hans is being humble here. Uh, he sent a, a, a family member to me, and it's just been a pleasure to take care of her because even at her age, which is quite elderly, she's a pistol. And those kind of patients are nice because they have fire, and they'll tell you exactly what you think instead of just buttering you up to get what they want.
0: Thank you very much. Now, we have about a 15-year uh, relationship, wouldn't you say? You and I? Yeah, you and I.
2: Yeah.
0: Okay. All right. Well, then more. who are you?
2: I think it's more. Yeah, I think it is, too. 15 years and counting. All right. Okay. The pain management practice in Paducah.
0: Okay, yeah. It's well, it's Ciccone. the American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians mm-hmm. that I met you through. What do you do with them? A lot. Oh, yeah, I'd, I'd agree so, with that.
2: No, no. Um, organize and run and oversee the lab.
0: <laughs> now Okay, something else kind of fun. You actually work every day uh, with Dr. Manchikani in the OR. I do. And so you get it coming and going, don't you?
2: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Coming and going, that's a lot. <laughs> no, that I'm not. Says it. I can't it. say it too loud because he's right behind you. I
0: know, I now, know. we,
2: in fact, <laughs> are getting ready to start PRP, regenerative, and all that stuff. We have purchased from a group, a centrifuge, and the kits for bone marrow, uh, adipose, and the PRP. So we're... Yeah. That's Soon a big to be investment. Up and going and establishing a place and time, and we're going to get started too.
0: I say it tongue in cheek. Greatest respect for Dr. Manchikani. So he's actually started a, a uh, certification course. He's going to have a textbook out, and he will have a textbook out. He's he will. Uh, It's incredibly, incredibly prolific, and he's going to take regenerative medicine to another level with everybody's help. So somebody creeped up on you. <laughs> Andrea, you want to you wanna po- put your two cents in? There you go,
3: Andrea. Oh, goodness. Uh, you know that anytime you put a microphone in front of my mouth, I'll start to talk. Yeah. That's good.
0: <laughs> in a big way, yeah. Uh, so, okay, pick a topic. Yeah.
3: Pick a topic. Um,
0: All right, let me help uh, you. Uh, okay. okay, let me help you.
3: Yep.
0: Uh, something that is uh, incredibly timely and important to us um, is uh, the future of interventional pain medicine? Because I saw you reading an I article. Was, I was looking at your screen on your computer. I was cheating. Um, and you were reading an article about that, The Future of Pain Medicine 2017 and Forward.
3: Yeah, there was a very disturbing article. It had mentioned things such as the um, the fact that big data is going to be used here Um, in 2017 to be able to identify those people who are high prescribers and the article suggested that blue cross is planning to um, decredential doctors that they feel are too big to uh, hey sandy get
0: back here (laughs) you got a big talk in this go ahead
3: yeah too big to be um, are prescribing too much in the way of medicines and so uh, that's going to be a very scary thing. We're seeing um, the insurance companies have figured out that all they have to do is say that something is experimental to be able to say that it's not covered, uh, which is very frustrating. Um, and the the it was sort of a doom and gloom kind of article, but um, I'm hoping that that's not the truth. I'm hoping that we're really looking at a potential resurgence, especially now that the recognition is that opioids aren't the way to treat uh, patients, or at least not exclusively opioids, and that interventional pain has a remarkable ability to be able to decrease the amount of pain patients are having and therefore decrease the amount of um, opioids that they would need. Your comment,
4: Well, I would agree that opioids should be used as a fallback mechanism, but unfortunately they're being demonized and villainized to the point where we can't use them at all. There's legislation in Florida now that's being proposed that you can't treat acute pain for more than five days with opioids. That's part of, and that's in the CDC guidelines, that's all they are guidelines, but they're being taken as law. And the problem is, once you let the horse out of the barn, you're never going to get him back. And the vilification of opioids, you know, I just actually had an interesting discussion with a statistician, um, a guy named Jim Hall. And I asked him, how do they determine if you die from an opioid overdose? In other words, if you're a corpse... And in your blood or your fluid is alcohol, morphine, heroin, fentanyl, and Xanax. How do you know which one caused death? And is it majority wins? And his answer was this is all decided by each medical examiner. So the data of 18,000 people dying a year of opioids, of, of opioid deaths, that means the opioid was in their system with maybe other things. And for some reason the medical examiner said, that was the cause of death. I don't know majority wins or something like that, but I think I, I'm not saying that we don't have an opioid problem. We have three epidemics, we have we have two epidemics and then a sub epidemic. We have an opioid epidemic and we have a pain epidemic. There are forty eight, forty two thousand people in 2014 committed suicide. Twenty eight thousand had chronic pain. That's more than the eighteen thousand that died of prescription overdoses. Okay. Um, the cost of chronic pain is significant 635 billion 100 million people have chronic pain okay then you have an opioid epidemic now you have the opioid epidemic it's subdivided into prescriptions and illicits the heroin is by far outstripping the prescription opioids the slope of that curve is almost 90 degrees okay the fentanyl that's observed is probably all illegal laced in the heroin okay so the number of prescription opioids have been markedly decreased the D- Cut production, so we're still seeing this opioid epidemic, but it's not because we're writing prescriptions, even though we're getting blamed for this. But I would say that there are patients that need to have opioids. Interventional management will fail them. Get a get a uh, an 87-year-old female with. Four Four or five compression fractures, who's on Eliquis for atrial fibrillation, congestive heart failure, you ain't doing a kyphoplasty on that lady. Okay? And if she lives and she can make a cup of tea with a 75 microgram patch of fentanyl, who cares?
3: And I think people don't realize that the 25 micrograms is 90 milli equivalents of morphine. so About 50.
4: It's really 50. It's two to one. Two to one. And it depends on on how you calculate it. But the problem is when this is turned into law, you're sitting there in the doctor's office and you're writing a prescription. The CDC guidelines are perverted and completely, totally taken out of context. Recommendation number five says you should avoid using greater than 50 milligram equivalents, and you should not use 90 milligram equivalents unless carefully justified. And the CDC guidelines are for primary care physicians. It says it in the pre. Why is it for primary care physicians? Because they're writing most of the opioids, and this is right out of the CDC guidelines. They're writing most of them and have little to no education in doing it. We pain specialists have the education, and we're paying the price, and we are being put into that
3: Oh, it's terrible because we we know that generic medicines have 20% more or 20% less medicine in them and still considered bioequivalent. And we have a whole group of people who are on a long acting every eight hours because it only lasts eight hours. But we've now had uh, every patient that I have on Q8 opioids right now in the state of Alaska has been denied. Every one of them. And, and so. a
4: lot of them are being forced into, you can't even get a prior authorization for a long-acting opioid, so you have to put them on a short-acting opioid like hydrocodone or oxycodone, which means you just double or triple the amount of pills and how much acetaminophen are they getting. But that doesn't really bother the insurance companies because those drugs cost pennies.
0: That's right. Plug your book.
4: Hands, you can plug my book for me. Okay, I will. He wrote a chapter. Chapter 13, Dealing with the Difficult Patient. What, a, what, a, what an interesting read.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Dan. The name of a must-read for those in interventional pain medicine or those that prescribe controlled substances. This is their book, Controlled Substance Management in Chronic Pain, A Balanced Approach. Peter S. Statz and Sanford M. Silverman. They've both been on the show. It's a Springer publication. It's really uh, well-written, well-edited, and uh, I was proud to being in this thing. So uh, pick your copy up. It isn't that expensive, and uh, maybe have a couple around. Give some for Christmas or a birthday present or something like that. Give them to a friend that prescribes. Great book. Yeah, this Candid type of uh, interviewing is my favorite to do, and when you get these you can you can just hear these brilliant minds uh, give you some raw uh, information and when it comes from an intellect that has done this for a long time, you really hear the core of pain management and pain uh, topics as well as uh, what we call the spirituality of pain, where we think it 's going to be three, six, nine, and twelve months or even years. We have to protect this uh, great um, great service, and it's a great specialty. So we're, we do it, and that's what these meetings are about, and that's why I'm so active. And so I will see you next week or sooner, I hope. And uh, if you'd leave a review at iTunes, I'd really appreciate It, it helps us rank and uh, paininformation.com I'm going to go through some of the questions uh, as within the next week or two some of them were were tough so I might even pull in some experts so uh, thanks for coming see you soon